we've been working our way through Mark this year, and creatively calling the series A Year with Mark. <laughs> and uh, we are, at this point, uh, about a year into the time period in which Jesus has been leading in His public ministry. So look with me, if you would, please, at verse 14, Mark 6, 14. It says this, King Herod heard it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he's Elijah. And others said, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Matthew chapter 11 records Jesus making this astonishing statement. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Jesus loved John. And as we saw in the beginning of Mark back in January, the beginning of this book says that John was sent as a messenger to declare that Jesus had come that he was the long-awaited Messiah. And so, John thought much of Jesus. There was a reciprocal admiration for each other. For that reason alone, that makes this an important story. John was the last and final of the Old Testament prophets. He served as a bridge into the New Testament, and his whole life was bound up in preparing the people to be ready to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Isaiah and Malachi, both in the Old Testament, foretold aspects of his life. And Luke records the uniqueness of literally the moment of conception onward in his life. With the close of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament, God told us that for 400 years, no new prophet would come. And so for 400 years, God had not given any fresh, vibrant, new word to His people. It was a long era of judgment upon them. But all that ended with the explosion of John in the northern area of Galilee, proclaiming a message of repentance. With the exception of Jesus Himself, no one is more important in the Gospels to the biblical story John, as many of you will remember, was a fiery preacher, a bit of a weirdo. He was an enigmatic man of tremendous conviction and resolute devotion to God. His calling was to announce the King is here. Turn from sin. Trust in the grace of God. Everything you've been longing for is now coming to pass. John pulled no punches. I imagine he's the kind of guy that would have been difficult to have a dinner conversation with. 
And we see evidence of that in his preaching in our passage today. And with a guy like that proclaiming a message like that, it was unavoidable that eventually his call for repentance would reach the halls of power. And that meant it would reach the ears of somebody named King Herod. At this point in Israel's history, Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee. Several family members were scattered throughout the Roman Empire in various forms of governmental authority. And if you were to cross the street and take a class in Roman history from somebody not a believer, then you would learn at ASU that the Herodian dynasty is still known today, both for their accomplishments and their wickedness. Verse 17 in this passage that we've read focuses in on one particular expression of the evil that marked Herod's life. Now, frankly, this is confusing, but it's important to the story. So hang with me. I'll do the best I can to explain it. Those of you who are around my age and up, you will remember a show called Jerry Springer. All right? I saw the horror on your face, Chilla. Chilla, did you watch Jerry Springer? You think you did once. (laughs) The surprising things we learn at Church on Mill. So this show was like infamous for sticking the most bizarre, crazy, debaucherous family together and then watch them fight. That's what the show was about. And that is the kind of stuff I'm going to tell you about. So get ready. Verse 17 mentions somebody named Herodias. Herodias. Herodias was the daughter of one of Philip, one of Herod's, his name was Philip, one of Herod's brothers. All right? So that makes him Herod's niece. But in Jerry Springer style, she was also the wife of one of Herod's other brothers, thus making her Herod's sister-in-law. You follow me so far? Okay. If Arkansas had existed. (laughs) Now, outside the Bible, we know that Herod made a trip to Rome where his brother was uh, ruling over his particular area as what was called a tetrarch or a king. And he and Herodias hooked up. And they both left their spouses, got married, and returned to Galilee together. That is some messed up stuff. It's easy, I think, today to assume that the kind of sexual behavior that marks our day is somehow new, and that it's only today that really marriage has become such a mess. But friends, that's not true. As long as there has been sinners, there has been sexual failure and bizarre marital endings. May the Lord strengthen us together that by His grace and power, we not do the same kinds of stuff. We are ever bit as capable of it. Be careful, brothers and sisters, with your eyes and with your heart. 
because unchecked lust will inevitably have enormous consequences. Now, this story was well known, and so when John preached his message of repentance, it was a message to call anyone and everyone to trust the grace of God, to turn from wickedness to a life in which God was putting them back together. And believe it or not, there are explicit laws in Leviticus that say, don't marry your brother's wife. And so John the Baptist would call him out. Verse 18 records what he would say. He said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, neither Herod nor Herodias appreciated John's rebuke. And for different reasons, they responded with different reactions. Herodias was just offended, disgusted, held a grudge, and therefore she wanted him dead. And no doubt, because Herod could do whatever he wanted, most of the time Herodias got what she wanted. And yet not this time. The passage we just read told us that John's reaction was different. John, uh, that Herod's reaction to John was different. Herod feared John. Now, how weird is that? Herod was the one in power. Herod could do what he wanted to do. And yet he feared John. Why? Well, the passage told us. He knew that John was a righteous and holy man, and therefore he feared him. In other words, when Herod heard John say, quit sleeping with your brother's wife, that's not lawful. Send her back. Respond to the grace of God with repentance. There was something happening within Herod in which he knew Maybe I ought to do that. His conscience was pricked. And therefore, he feared John. Now, Herod was also perplexed by him too. He was torn between, I hear him, I think maybe some of what he's saying is right and I ought to do something about it. But he's saying all this other crazy stuff too. So this was quite a predicament for the couple. Imagine their dinner conversations. I want him dead. I'm afraid of him. I'll go kill him. No, you won't. That would have been what was happening. And the verb tense in the passage that says how John spoke to Herod tells us that it was a repetitive action. He told him and kept telling him. Now, how did that happen, practically speaking? It wasn't like John was tweeting publicly Herod, repent. So how are they in proximity? Well, here's where the compromise came in. One day, no doubt over a meal, Herod said, honey, I've got the solution. I'm going to arrest him and put him in prison. Now, this prison has been excavated today. It's a place you can go and tour. The prison was in a dungeon underneath the palace. And so very likely what happened is every now and then, Herod would make his way down to the dungeon and would sit and have a conversation with John. And John would keep saying the same thing. And Herod, for some reason, would keep going back. While Herodias remained up top, up in the palace, 
fuming, but also scheming. Let me show you what I mean in verse 21. But an opportunity came. When Herod gave his birthday, when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, For, what's, for what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist." And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Palace parties were predictably and infamously wicked. Wealth, power, pride, a horde of men, and an unending supply of alcohol do not a good mixture make. Herod threw himself a frat party. And when everybody was past tipsy, he called for the dancers. Now what happened at that point is something at least as far as I know and have been able to find, there is no precedent for what then took place. This kind of person would have had um, professional dancers who were also the prostitutes available to everybody who came to the party. And when he called for the dancers, very likely that's what he was expecting would then come in. But in came his stepdaughter. She performed some kind of lewd, erotic dance for Herod and his drunk guests. And with the roar of applause filling the air, Herod said, with great stupidity, ask for whatever you want and I'll give it to you. A father enjoying his daughter's nudity to that extent, it is hard to imagine a more wicked scene. But it, it did get worse. You see, sin knows no bounds. What happens with sin in our lives, especially when we've been confronted about a pattern and we have not, repented. That sin expands. It gets worse 
and worse and worse. Verse 24 tells us that the, the dancing daughter ran to mommy and asked what she should ask for. And Herodias knew, now is the chance. I want John the Baptist's head. The barbarity of it is, is incredible. Look at verse 25. It, it says, and she came in immediately with haste. That's like saying at a restaurant, I would like pie a la mode with ice cream. It's completely redundant. But Mark has written in such a way as to tell us, she came rushing to mom, excited for the moment, not in any way inhibited by her actions. And mom told her what to do, and so she rushed back in, skipping, and Herod was stuck. He was, on the one hand, scared of John the Baptist, but on the other hand, he now was in a position politically in which he had to do what he had promised to do. They called for the executioner. Imagine just having one of those on the side. <laughs> it's bizarre. They called for the executioner, very likely took one of the platters at the table, dumped the food off of it, handed it to the executioner, said, go downstairs, lop off his head, and come back with it. My wife would like it as an ornament. That's the way the greatest prophet of the Old Testament era died. Now, there's all kinds of things I'd love to say there about how do we deal with evil that happens to godly people? How do we process that? Why would God allow this incredibly significant person to go out that way? But that's not Mark's point of emphasis. Friend, if you're not a Christian, be very careful not to toy with the message of Christianity. It seems that that's what Herod had been doing. He had had some minor interest, and so he'd gone again and again to John and said, John, talk to me again. And John had recounted to him what God expects, what God requires, and yet what God will do when we repent. And, and, and Herod liked listening to it, but he was confused, but he knew part of it was right. He was a mess. And yet he heard that over and over and over and failed to respond. And therefore, by virtue of his own actions, he would never hear John again. If you hear the message of grace and the call to repent, and at least some of you believes it to be true, then please, I urge you, go to someone who knows Christ, who can sit with you and counsel you and pray with you and listen to you and encourage you. Don't put it off because that has a hardening effect and it will result in deeper and deeper moral debauchery. Sin 
confronted, yet not confessed, leads to chaos. Brothers and sisters, this is the tragic story of the end of John the Baptist's life. Now, doesn't it feel like maybe the most bizarre story in the entire book of Mark, if you've read the rest of it? I mean, these verses recount John's arrest and death, but there is no command given to us, nor is there any overt, direct teaching about Jesus. And so, what in the world are we supposed to do with this story? I think it feels like you're sitting happily watching an NBA playoffs game, and then a lewd commercial comes on. It's like, I wasn't looking for that. That had nothing to do with what I was watching, and yet there it is. And then the game comes back on, which, by the way, is what will happen today if you watch the games. Now, what is the deal? And why did, John, why did Mark choose to place this story about John here in his gospel account? It's clearly not for chronological reasons. This isn't stuck there because it happened then. So what's going on? Well, if you have your Bible open, look with me back at verses 12 and 13 from last week says this, so they, that's the apostles, remember Jesus sent them out for the first time to declare the gospel of the kingdom. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It sounds like the apostles went on their first missionary journey and met wild success. And then there's this bizarre story of John the Baptist. And then look at the end. Look at verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Jesus sends the apostles on their trip. They return from their trip. And stuck in the middle is something that did not happen chronologically. Did Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, writing his gospel, somehow have a brain fart and stuck it somewhere it didn't belong? No. So why is it here? Well, I would submit to you that Mark didn't get confused, and he didn't recount this story in the wrong place, nor did some redactor later on cut and paste and mess it up. Note, Mark here is using what we've called previously the sandwich technique. This is one of his favorite literary devices. He tells a story, so top bun, then he gives us another story, meat, and then he gives us the bottom bun, the bottom story. And everybody knows the sandwich is all about what's in the middle. He's doing that again. The apostles are sent. Something happens. 
tragic to John the Baptist, the apostles return. Mark fed us a literary sandwich to communicate something incredibly important that maybe we wouldn't be as readily able to see and feel and hear and respond to if he told it a different way. His point is that those sent by God with the good news will suffer for it. Those sent by God with good news will suffer for it. God sent John with good news, and he literally lost his head. God sent Jesus with good news, and he got crucified for it. God sent these apostles with good news. And 10 of the 12 were executed. Those sent by God with good news will suffer for it. It happened to John. It happened to Jesus. It happened to the apostles. And for thousands of years, it's been happening to every faithful Christian. So guess what? It will happen to us too. If we hear this passage rightly, then I think it has the effect of any notion of self-centered, risk-free, health, wealth, and ease Christianity just being shattered forever. When you get Jesus, you don't get an easier life. All those called by Jesus are also sent by Jesus. And all those sent by Jesus will, at times, inevitably face hardships on behalf of Jesus. We are, as Christians, to pattern our lives after His. And therefore, why would we think our lives would be different than His? Church, as we share the gospel and live for Christ in a world hostile to the things of God, there will no doubt be many, 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 many wonderful moments. But there will also be instances of pain. And that should serve as no surprise to us. Because Jesus himself defined the basic call of a Christian as this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Sometimes Christians are shunned by family members because they've trusted Christ and they're the only one in their family. Sometimes Christians are mocked for saying they believe the Scriptures, that when God gave sexual commands, that He knew what He was talking about, and that sex is better if you keep it in heterosexual marital union. Sometimes Christians lose friends for taking the risk to lovingly, patiently, kindly, yet courageously say, friend, you need Jesus. Sometimes Christians get fired for refusing to cut corners at work and deciding that it's better to obey and be jobless than to be dishonest and gainfully employed. Sometimes, not in this country, at least not right now, 
but sometimes our brothers and sisters in other places where the freedoms we enjoy are not promised. Sometimes when they are asked to recant, they say, I serve a better king, and they die for it. We are uniquely positioned as a church in that God brings continually people here from all around the world. And sometimes people who come here for school leave with Jesus. And they will go to places where far more is demanded and required of them. Church, if, if you're an American, you're from here, I can't encourage you enough to get to know our brothers and sisters who are right here among us, who will go to harder places than we live. Let them teach you. Those sent by God will suffer for it to the glory of God. Now, in my younger years, I would have ended the sermon here, but as you get older, you just talk more. (laughs) I've come to recognize that guilt is a terrible motivator. It doesn't actually work. And if it does work, it only works for about that long. And it's inconsistent with the message of the gospel itself. And so I want to end this sermon a different way. Let me ask you a question. If Christianity inevitably brings suffering, and I'm not talking about the kind of suffering that everybody experiences, car wrecks, cancer, natural calamities. Every person who lives in any place, irrespective of how long they live, they will eventually face some kind of hardship, some kind of severe crisis, ultimately ending in death. But that's not the kind of suffering I'm talking about. If Christianity brings about difficulty and trial and hardship and suffering in people's lives they would not have had apart from that Christianity. Why does anyone believe it? If Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and then he literally got nailed to a cross and died, and if that is the pattern of what we ought to expect as we follow Jesus, Why has Christianity survived 2,000 years? You get the question? It's because Jesus is better. A life of suffering with Jesus is better than a life without suffering without Jesus. They're categorically different. He's worth it. He's better. All the health, wealth, and ease you could ever seek and inevitably not find is empty compared to being a person who knows and loves and serves and trusts Jesus.
That's why. The Apostle Peter was the one who recounted this story to Mark, and Mark inscripturated it, because Mark wasn't there, but Peter was. And Peter in another place, if you want to turn there, feel free, it won't be on the screens. I just thought of this this morning. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, speaks to suffering, this kind of suffering that's the suffering of a Christian. And just hear it. 1 Peter 4 verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, okay, the kind of suffering that John had and that the apostles had, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinners? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to the faithful Creator while doing good. Peter learned the lesson. Will you? Will we? If you live for Jesus and you share Christ, Some will respond with faith and repentance. Others will hate you. And some of those will do whatever they can to make your life hard. But entrust your soul to the faithful Creator as you do that That is why John's death was stuck right there between the apostles going and the apostles returning. As we go, don't sulk and don't be driven by guilt to tell others about Jesus. Tell them because you know deep down in your bones Jesus is better. Will you stand with me and let's pray. Before I offer a prayer on our behalf, would you take a moment and just talk to God about what you've heard?
Father, there's this moment in the Gospels where a huge crowd had gathered and Jesus performed a miracle. And then after that miracle, He said some hard things. And the vast majority of people then walked away. They turned their back on Him. And Jesus, in tremendous wisdom, turned to His disciples and said, well, well, aren't you going to go too? And one of them responded, where else would we go? You have the words of life. God, in your wisdom, the way Christians progress in their Christianity and your church spreads is so often in hardship. There is that great saying from the early days of the church that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That those who thought they could stomp out, stamp it away early, early in Christian history and began wide-scale killing Christians, all they ended up doing was spreading it even further. Because when people know that they've been rescued out of sin and welcomed into a relationship with the Father, forgiven of sins past, present, and future, guaranteed a home with you forever, when you get a hold of people like that, they're willing to suffer in small and even grand ways. Lord, today we repent of being ashamed of the gospel, of believing that Christianity is supposed to make life easy. And we pray today that you would renew our hearts with the great truth that Jesus is better than anything else. Use us this week, Father, to lovingly, courageously, boldly, Look for opportunities that you might present, that we might share a little something about you. We live in a place so desperately in need of King Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name.